to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live I In the words of the hymn, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. For thou art the potter, and we are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will, while we are waiting, yielded and still. Let me welcome you to this ministry. I'm so pleased you've joined us, and I hope that this will be a blessing to you tonight. Now we're going to look at our scripture lesson, which comes from the Second Corinthians chapter 13 beginning at verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God and love of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, all our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind 
is truly a classic. Who will ever forget Rhett Butler's final words to Scarlett O'Hara as he leaves Tara? In reference to her well-being, Rhett Butler answers, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Famous last words. On April the 8th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed. Prior to his execution, he had been leading a little worship service in the jail there with his fellow prisoners. As he concluded his last prayer, two very evil-looking men entered the cell and said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. Everybody knew it could only be the scaffold. So as Bonhoeffer was preparing to leave, he whispered to a fellow prisoner, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. And then there's John Wesley. He's on his deathbed. He's propped up in the center of the picture. He's on a pillar. Everybody's waiting for his last words. Some are singing, some are praying, some are meditating, but they're all waiting. Wesley finally speaks. He says, the best of all is God is with us. Famous last words. George Washington said to the troops at Valley Forge when he left, so long, boys. No, that's not really his famous last words. It was just too good of a story to pass. But what I'm thinking now are about some other famous last words. The Apostle Paul gave some final words to the Corinthians. He wanted to strike a note of encouragement, and he wanted to encourage them to live in reconciling harmony. Now, the very heart of reconciliation is grace, love, and fellowship. And these are the things Paul includes in his last words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Famous last words. Indeed, famous last words. First of all, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy that Paul should start there. He starts with God the Redeemer. God revealed in Christ the Savior, the Son. Why didn't he start with God the Creator, the Supreme Being, the amazing providence behind all of this universe? It is said that at the funeral of Louis XIV, there was a great crowd gathered of mourners to pay tribute to this great king. There was one lone candle lit in all of the darkness, illuminating the golden casket of their monarch. But when the court preacher stood up to preach, when his time came in the service, as he stood up, he snuffed out the candle. And then the only thing that people heard were these words in the darkness, only God is great. And so we say in the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, why did Paul not start with God the Creator? Why did he start with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps the great Scottish preacher, James Stewart, helps us to understand. Listen to what the late Dr. Stewart said. He says, surely the reason is this, that as soon as the human mind begins reflecting at all on life and experience, it is brought relentlessly face to face with the grim and frightening fact that in this world as we know it, in our own inmost nature as we know it, Something is radically wrong. So we look out on the world, and what do we see? We see destructive relationships. We see stagnant prejudice. We see systemic evil. We see humankind's inhumanity to humankind. 
And when we look within, the picture is not much better. There we see meaninglessness. And there we see mixed up priorities, anxiety, anguish, and guilt. And one of the popular television programs in this country, one of the characters came in one night and confessed to being a part in a blackmail scheme. But he confessed to his wife, and he was very remorseful. He said, I feel dirty inside. Oh, world of ours so broken and forsaken, who will set us right? Oh, wretched person that I am, who will set me free? Paul started with Jesus Christ because he knew that it was the grace of Christ that had sought him, found him, and forgiven him on the Damascus Road. Paul started with Christ because he knew the relentless lover had captured him in spite of his evasions and his resistance. John Wesley, the great Methodist leader, said he went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street one night, and he went very unwittingly. There someone was reading the preface to Luther's epistle to the Romans. When he listened to him, he said he was in a strange environment, but I want you to notice this. He went unwittingly, unwillingly. He was there as a stranger to a small group. He was listening to a 200-year-old piece of literature, and yet he said, strangely, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. At our last annual conference in South Georgia, a retiring minister stood up and said that he had had a recent heart transplant. He said that, among other things, that a young 38-year-old man had died and lost his life. And he said he had somehow gained his heart. But then he said this, he concluded by saying, there's nothing like knowing that you are alive because somebody else died. Put that into the larger context. There is nothing like knowing that we are alive because somebody else died. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we're told in Scripture. The late Bishop Arthur Moore said that one of the greatest joys in his life was preaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And yet he said he had yet to find the words to express what he truly felt about Christ in the deep conviction of his soul. That's also true of me. We are all saved by a process we do not understand. Somehow Jesus made us right. I'm not okay, and you're not okay, but that's okay. And so for Paul, Christ was his very consciousness of forgiveness. Christ was the secret of his gratitude. Christ was the bridge over the trouble he had with others. Christ was the strength of his discipleship. And so for Paul, he began with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, Paul said, and the love of God, and the love of God. When I was in seminary, I had to preach a sermon on the subject if I had only one sermon to preach. I remember I preached then as I'm preaching today on the love of God. For absolutely nothing is more important, more glorious, more wonderful to me than God's love. Now I want you to listen to this sentence and mark it down. It was the grace of Christ that made real to Paul the love of God. Listen again. It was the grace of Christ that made real to Paul the love of God. Someone made this comment, a cynic. God is love, but get it in writing. Christ is where we get it in writing. Christ was where Paul got it in writing. 
the mercy that Paul discovered in the eyes of Jesus on the Damascus Road, he now discovers that same mercy in the pattern of the universe, in the origin of creation, in the clues to life's reality, in the redemption of humankind. You know, a few years ago, my wife and I were in Denver, Colorado, and one Sunday afternoon, we rented an automobile, and we drove up through the mountains. I remember going around those bends and looking up and seeing those majestic mountains, all those beautiful valleys, and my wife remembers the same. And the only thing we could say to each other was, look, we didn't have the words to describe what we were seeing. Things were so wondrous and so beautiful and so awesome. All we could say was, look, when we start considering God's love, when we survey God's love, that's all we can say. Look, let's take a look at the length of God's love. It is eternal. The length of God's love is eternal. Anne Lamott described her faith trip as being drawn to grace. She said years ago she was a horrible sinner. She said she still is, but she was horrible. She was drunk. She was addicted to drugs. She was depressed. She was bulimic. She had all kinds of problems. She couldn't imagine herself being loved by God, so she went to her priest, and the priest talked about it with her. She said she couldn't imagine herself being loved by God, as I said. The priest said, God has to love you. That's his job. That priest was right. God does have to love us. That's his job, his unconditional love job. God's love is everlasting. It never runs out. It never washes his hands of us. It accepts us as we are. I think it was Jeremiah the prophet who understood when he heard God say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then there's the width of God's love. It's universal. It includes everybody. Martin Niemöller was in a German prison, and he had time to think. And he said he came to the conclusion while he was there that God is not the enemy of my enemies. Neither is God the enemy of God's enemies. Now, when we receive Christ into our hearts, we have to be prepared because when he comes, he's going to bring a lot of other people with him, and these people are going to be very different from us. There was a minister, is a minister, named Adam Hamilton, who is in Kansas, a Methodist minister. He wrote a book called When Christians Get It Wrong, and the last chapter was titled When Christians Get It Right. You know when he said Christians get it right? He said Christians get it right when they love. Isn't that what Jesus said when he said, and he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Then he said that's the great and first commandment, but the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have to remember the width of God's love is universal. It includes everybody. And then there's the depth of God's love. It's personal. It is said that Henry Ward Beecher loved everybody so much that he loved nobody very much. And many people have started thinking God that way. He loves everybody so much that he doesn't love anybody very much. There were these three men who knew that a talking scale was to be brought into their community. And when it was, they were delighted. So one of them stepped on the scale, put a penny in, and the scale said, you weigh 140 pounds. The second one stepped on the scale, put a penny in, and the scale said, you weigh 170 pounds. The third man, who was rather large, 
he hesitatingly stepped on the scale, and when he did, he put his penny in, and the scale said, one at a time, please. That's the way God loves us, one at a time. God knows your name. God knows where you live. God knows the issues you face. God knows the sufferings you are enduring. God's love by its very nature is a personal love. God's love is eternal, yes. Universal, yes. Personal, yes. And so Paul said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. And then Paul said, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, how do we come to understand the grace of Christ and the love of God through the power and person of the Holy Spirit? That's how we come to understand it, through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And so we say this in our creed. We affirm, we believe in the Holy Spirit as the divine presence in our lives, whereby we are kept in perpetual remembrance of the truth of Christ and find strength and help in time of need. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, it is always a mystery, and yet we can say some things about it. The Holy Spirit creates life anew. For instance, there was Peter on the night of the crucifixion. He was standing near the fire. After he denied Christ, he was in the fire. But after Pentecost, he was on fire, on fire. The Holy Spirit creates new life. And then the Holy Spirit brings us comfort. What did Jesus say? I will send you another comforter, another counselor, and he will be with you forever. As one woman described it, I had an inside power from an outside source. And then the Holy Spirit produces fruit. The writer of Galatians tells us how this looks like, and I'd like to just read this to you. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness or generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, generosity, self-control. And then the Holy Spirit fosters fellowship, fosters communion. Now, for sure, the wind of the Holy Spirit blows where it wills, but it always blows in the direction of community. We're told in the Scripture that in Christ Jesus there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, free or otherwise. Everybody's one in Christ Jesus. Everybody's one in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to me. When there is ministry, caring ministry, going on anywhere in the world in the name of Jesus, there is the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Berlin Wall was torn down and South African apartheid ended, that was the work of the Holy Spirit. When people are working for peace in the Middle East and other troubled spots in the world, there is the work of the Holy Spirit. For those who have eyes to see, the Holy Spirit, the energizing presence of God. The Holy Spirit works anywhere and everywhere in the world. And then the Holy Spirit empowers our witness. Question, what was the purpose of Pentecost? What was the purpose of Pentecost? The purpose of Pentecost had something to do with God's mission. 
In other words, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, we were also given an assignment. Without an assignment, why do we need the gift of Pentecost? The late Bill Henson told about, at one of our South Georgia breakfasts, he told about the fact that so many pulpits today do not proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He said, why are pulpits silent concerning the good news of Jesus Christ? And then he answered it with his own word. He said, there are many people who consider the name of Jesus as being incorrect these days. He said, the pressures of society keeps that from happening. He said, nobody wants to be a target. But he, then he said, there is still time for us to join the ranks of the unashamed. Did you hear that? There is still time for us to join the ranks of the unashamed. This is a lesson not only for clergy, but for laity as well. The Apostle Paul said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this day, and we're so grateful for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're thankful, O oh God, that we know the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, and we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and identify again and again and again with us. Make us aware of how much you love us. Make us aware of the task you call us to. Make us aware of the power you give to us as we seek to do your will. Thank you for your presence. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this broadcast tonight, and I hope that you'll join us next week and tell your friends to be a part of these ministries. Thank you, and good night. stage and set a sound a light ablaze if that's the measure you must take to crush the idols jerk the pews and all the decorations too until the congregation's few then have revival tell your friends that this is where the party ends until you're broken for your sins you can't be social and seek the lord and wait for what he has in store and know that great is your reward so just be hopeful because you can sing all you want to yes you can Sing all you want to, you can sing all you want to, but don't get me wrong. Worship is more than a song. Take a break from all the plans that you have made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper. Beg and plead and open up his mouth and speak and pray for real upon your knees until they blister. Shine the light on every corner of your life until the pride and lust and lies are in the open. 
Read the word and put to test the things you've heard until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken. Cause you can sing all you want to. Yes, you can sing all you want to. You can sing all you want to, but don't get me wrong. Worship is more than a song. And anything I put before my God is an idol. And anything I want with all my heart is an idol. And anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. And anything that I give all my love is an idol. We must not worship something that's not even worth it. Clear the stage, make some space for the one who deserves it. And I can sing all I want to. Yes, I can sing all I want to. I can sing all I want to and still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. Clear the stage and set a sound, the lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take, to crush the idols. <laughs>